0: Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus.
1: Brad, my man, how's everything going?
0: You know, things are going horizontal right now for me.
1: You're going to have to explain that to our listeners.
0: Yeah, I, um, I had some surgery on my calf a couple of days ago. It was a long time coming for a, uh, a chronic condition called exertional compartment syndrome where basically the fascia, the tissue, the material that encases your muscle doesn't expand with your muscle. So whenever my calf muscle would get blood to it in action... The muscle would expand, but the fascia around it, like saran wrap, would stay really tight, so I didn't have any circulation. And I, for the last, I don't know, eight years, have tried every conservative treatment under the sun. I've foam rolled more than the god of foam rolling. I've dry needled. I've even had Botox inserted into my calf. And, um, none of it really worked. And I, I'd been kicking the can down the road for long enough and the can hit the end of the road, which for me was hiking became just unenjoyable. And, um, I was all right, quitting running. I was all right, quitting biking, but I'm not, I'm not gonna leave behind hiking. Um, so I went in and I had the surgery. It's called a fasciotomy. They basically just fillet your calf to give it more space and then let it heal. And, um, I have been lying down with my leg elevated pretty much nonstop since then. Surgery was great. It was my first time having general anesthesia. It was a ball. I wasn't nauseous. I woke up feeling chipper. Um, Recovery is not so fun. That sounds really hard. It is. And um, that's why I'm excited that we are talking about how to do hard things today. So... I am all coffeeed up and um ready to bring my a game, so I've been looking forward to this. This is the first thing I've done that's required of my brain since having surgery, so we'll see how it goes, Steve.
1: We'll see if your brain has recovered after your uh your surgery we We won't put the uh surgery pictures up that you shared from with us, but it was it was pretty gnarly, dude, so I'm glad you're at least uh at least back on the podcast,
0: yeah, all right so. Unless you've been living under a rock, listeners, you're aware that yesterday, Steve's new book, the latest Growth Equation production, Do Hard Things, just dropped. And I am just super stoked for this book to be out in the world. It is absolutely incredible. It is probably the best stuff that we've done yet. Um, If not, it's the perfect complement to everything else that we've done. It couldn't be more timely. And today we are going to go behind the scenes and talk about why we get resilience wrong and the surprising science of real toughness. So contrary to our normal podcast, I'm going to interview Steve today. So it won't be so much banter, but um, I'm going to take on the role of reporter and Steve is going to take on the role of author. And uh, we're going to dive right in. So my first question, Steve, is when did you decide that you wanted to write this book? And why did you write this book without me?
1: Good question, Brad. So the first one is I've been circling around this topic for years, if not decades, going all the way back to my own running career. In understanding, I've always wanted to understand how we do difficult things early on that came in running, but as I progressed in life and got thrown into the, the wood chipper of life and putting myself in positions where I had to take on some really difficult challenges and really be tested... Um, It really came front and center of like, oh, man, I'm struggling through a lot of stuff. Like, how do we develop this idea? Everyone tells me that I need to be resilient and tough and all that stuff. But what does it actually mean? And what I was seeing in my own athletic career, actually, as I transitioned into my own coaching career, was a lot of stuff that went counter to what I was reading in the research, and then counter to what the best athletes I was working with were actually doing. And then as I got out of the athletic career a little bit and transitioned, what I was seeing with people I was working with in the workplace or in life, what actually worked was different from what often maybe their boss or executives were doing to them to help you know create resilience and toughness. And I think the ultimate story of why this book now is a pretty simple one for those who, well, everyone should know at, at, at this point, but in 2012, I blew the whistle on anti-doping activities that, that I saw when I worked with Nike. And that took almost 10 years to resolve. And that was honestly one of the toughest uh, things that I'd ever gone through. And, I wasn't ready to write a book on toughness until I got close to the other side of that. And if you'd like to hear more of that story, you can listen to my interview with Rich Roll that I did recently. But once I was kind of on the other side of that, I was like, okay, it's time to write this book. And why, why without you, Brad? That's, that's a good question. You know, Brad, I love writing with you. I have a, uh, have a lot of fun doing it, and a lot of ways it's it's easier because I feel like we complement each other and and um, help each other's shortcomings. So there were many instances during this book where I was I would ask myself, "What would Brad do?" Um, because that keeps me uh, keeps me aligned. But read it over know, a
0: million times and obsess over the sentence more than I need to.
1: Yes, exactly. That's that's what you would do so so i i tried to force myself to do that because that is not my strategy but you know the in many ways this is like groundedness was for you a very deeply personal book do hard things to me is similarly that very deeply personal book and that's why it just felt like the right time where it's like okay Let's tackle this. Let's get back in the saddle and you know figure out how to communicate this message to the world.
0: Love it. So before we get into the book itself uh, and your writing process for this, I wanted to ask one question on the Nike Oregon Project Whistleblowing situation. And again, we're not going to go in depth. You spent, I don't know, over an hour with Rich Roll discussing that. So we'll include that in the show notes for people that really want to get the details. But um, the too long didn't read Alberto Salazar, head coach of the Nike Oregon Project, big running program, was engaging in all kinds of nefarious behavior. Steve, you were a young kid working for him. He was extremely manipulative, so on and so forth. I want to know how you dealt with after you blew the whistle, seeing him at track meets, seeing him at your deposition? Like, were you calm? Were you just panicking? Because it's kind of like confronting an abuser in a way. And not only an abuser, but an abuser that has like blackmailed you and threatened you and that. Yeah, like I don't want to say is evil maniacal because I don't know him, but man, the stories that have come out, not just with you, like a pretty sociopathic dude, you blow the whistle, you'd worked with him. And then because it's taken 10 years to get some resolution, which is ultimately Alberto Salazar sentenced to a ban from coaching, you had to bump into the guy all the time. And I'm really curious what that was like.
1: Yeah, that I've never been asked that question. It was extremely difficult. So, And it changed over time a little bit, but it was always extremely difficult. The first time, actually, that I bumped into him was right before, I believe, if I remember the time right, right before everything was about to come out. And obviously, the reporters had done their job and asked him like, for comments and all that stuff. And I remember him confronting me at a track meet and i believe this one's in in england that i was at and he goes who are you talking to and what did you see in the warm up area of a track meet and i just remember just kind of like having that freeze response of like what what were you like why are you talking to me and i remember just staring back to back at him and vaguely saying something like I'm sorry, I'm not talking to you. And then just walking away. And since, you know, after that, for sure, after it came out in public, I would see him at track meets. You know, I, I remember having to go to, you know, essentially their backyard for, you know, us nationals at in, in Eugene, Oregon and other stuff. And, you know, I'd walk and see him there and all the time. And honestly, I would try my best with whatever track mean I knew he was going to be at. I would avoid him and anyone associated with him, but it wasn't always possible because you're in the same warm up area. And and it was just, uh, I mean, honestly, I just had like this almost the only way I can describe it is this like what I imagined, as you said, like a, a an abuse, like someone who sees their abuser would feel like this instant feeling of anxiety that rushes through your your body that just almost pushes you towards this oh flee protect like you're in danger mode and there was that was the most salient the most pronounced um during the you know arbitration or deposition or whatever you call it where he is sitting across from me and i just remember just like being in there And that was the worst anxiety I have ever felt in my life. And I've done some very difficult things and I've competed on very high levels and very pressure filled situations, but nothing compared to like that, that that hit of anxiety that occurred in that moment.
0: So warning for the audience, I'm going to swear not at like a 10 out of 10 level, like a three out of 10 level but help me understand why you weren't able to just be like screw you you asshole i'm going to tell exactly what happened and your ass is about to get banned for cheating
1: you you like to think that you'd come in with that attitude but similar maybe this will this will help for you and hopefully our audience is The way I would encapsulate it is that sort of anxiety wasn't the kind of anxiety that I can just say, oh, I'm going to turn this into a challenge, or I'm going to turn this into excitement. It was the kind of anxiety or overwhelming, like, oh, that I would equate to feeling um, like in the depths of OCD, where you're just, there's no rationalizing it. There's no like, Hey, I'm going to I'm going to, you know, screw you. Let's go. I'm going to come for you. It's almost like this instant visceral reaction that you have no control of that then you have to figure out how to, you know, navigate through and then get on the other side where you can get to some place where you can be quote unquote normal
0: or tough. Yeah. So that gets to the definition of toughness in the book and I'm going to paraphrase a little, you define toughness is the ability to be in distressing and uncomfortable situations and act in alignment with your core values. So before we move to what you call real toughness, which is that, let's discuss fake toughness, which is maybe like fleeing the room or punching them in the face. Um, so Give me a definition of fake toughness and maybe start it like an extreme character caricature of fake toughness, and then let's talk in a little bit more nuance about well-meaning coaches, well-meaning teachers, well-meaning managers that are still leading with the wrong model, and then we'll get into the right model.
1: Yeah, sure. So fake toughness is is kind of easy to define and spot. It is appearance without substance. So it is a over-reliance on the external. It is the person who comes in with all of this brav- bravado and machismo and says like, oh, this is easy. I got this. No problem. It It is the person who projects superiority in the workplace or on Instagram or online, right? It's the person who... Is the high school football coach who trips over or like feels empowered by this like this control over a bunch of teenagers and utilizes it. Right. It's the person (laughs) who who is almost the uh, the high school or the elementary school bully. Right. Who gets that that feeling of power and control and says like, oh, like I'm tough even though deep down they have this inner insecurity that is really driving the ship.
0: Got it. So it's the person that does the equivalent of taking steroids and doing a bunch of curls and triceps exercises without any functional movement that would actually benefit them in, in real life. Um, and you could take that metaphor and apply it to anything. Is that right? Exactly. So, Why don't you give an example of um, your kind of your favorite microcosm of fake toughness in a in a authority figure that most most podcast listeners would know?
1: (laughs) Well, how controversial do you want me to get here?
0: You know, this is you. You are you've got home field advantage with this podcast, Steve. So you take it wherever you want.
1: That that is true. So uh, I'll give you an example that, uh, you know, maybe isn't as con- controversial and we perhaps all would agree on. Vladimir Putin is a great example of this, right? What is he? He's an authoritarian figure. He controls his nation through fear and power and control. No one really respects him. Like right? He doesn't have real buy-in. He also creates this this facade, this image of toughness, right? All the videos, what is it of him like riding a a horseback? You know, riding a horse with no shirt on, playing hockey. Well, everybody, you know, where we watch it and we say, "Oh, you guys are letting this old man score on you to make him look good." But to him, it's like, "Oh, look at how great I am! I'm a." whatever 60 something year old like competing in hockey a tough sport against these these younger people and winning it's all about that external right and but deep down there's nothing there it's insecurity And, you know, it's it's so what you're
0: saying is Putin is is Putin is like every fitness influencer on Instagram.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is. Right. But that's what it is. It's like creating the appearance of it. And, you know, we can laugh, but we'd all agree that Putin probably isn't tough. Right. In the real sense of it, like he hides away in his place and sits like 30 feet away at the table from anybody who comes in to visit him. Right. Because like he's scared to death of getting killed or whatever have you. Um, But there's, you know, maybe to get a little controversial, there's this wonderful quote. Well, it's not really wonderful, but it's wonderful for displaying fake toughness by uh, our former president, Donald Trump, who says, like, Putin, oh, yeah, he's a tough guy. Because why? He sees the authoritarian, the power and control, and says, oh, that's what toughness is. But it's not like that's not it. It's it's all fake. It's the Instagram version of it. So hopefully we can agree on that.
0: All right. So we're going to come back to Putin because I had a very specific question actually about him, not even knowing that you mentioned him. But I think it's going to be more relevant once we have a little more context for some of the other ideas in your book. So um, let's talk about the military. What do people think military toughness is and what is actual military toughness in modern times
1: so this is one of my favorite topics because it was fascinating to explore in the book is people see the military and they often think like oh like look at the navy seals they go through hell week look at these uh soldiers they go through boot camp what is that it's just you do incredibly hard things and then you just survive and you see you know who will sink and who will swim." And the ones who swim are the tough ones. That's our conception of it. Hell week occurs; it's really difficult. We know all those things, but our conception is often what I call like the movie or film version of the military. Well, the reality is, if you research it, if you talk through those who have gone through boot camp, who have gone through you know the Navy SEALs training or special forces training, or soldiers who have gone through survival training is yes, Hell Week is really difficult, but that's a sorting mechanism. That is not a training mechanism. That is the equivalent in the military of taking your SAT, saying, huh, do they have a high enough intelligence to like make it in our school? And then we'll train them after that. We'll educate them after that. That's essentially what Hell Week and other similar things are for that. If you look at how the military actually trains individuals... It's, it's completely different. Military is the largest employer of sports psychologists for a reason. And every single branch has some sort of what I'd call mental fitness program that is designed to give people the skills to cope and deal with whatever reality they will face. So a lot of it, you know, I talked to a former athlete of mine. Who's in the military? They said, essentially, Steve, like, I have a 600 page book on like everything to do from mental skills of surviving to going to war, et cetera. I sat through hours of lectures. And then I got through thrown into simulations after I was trained. And then after the simulations, we reviewed and said, Up, oh, this is where you messed up. Here, here's how we have to learn to get better. So it really is about educating and training those characteristics not just hey let's beat our head against the wall and see what happens
0: yeah in my experience in the military is that there is still some of this generational divide where the old guard is very much what you might consider more aligned towards fake toughness and the new younger leaders are much more open to um just broader definitions of what it actually means to be tough.
1: Yeah, I think there's a, a big reason for that. Because again, if you look at the history of things, a lot of our kind of ideas came out of the the World Wars.
0: Right. right. Which Where was, it was just brute strength. Whoever had the biggest tanks would win the war.
1: It, exactly. Another part of this is during, let's say, World War II, you know, in the U S at least you had a draft and you said, Oh man, we have to get these people somewhat ready, really, really fast. So it's almost like you give the quick and dirty of like, Hey, we need to create a little bit of discipline and then like, see if you can handle this stuff and then throw you out there and see what happens. That was just the necessity of it. But, you know, over the years, it's why, you know, actually, I think it wasn't until the 1960s or seventies was the first, um, survival course or survival training that came into the military where they said hey we've got all these people who are having to deal with let's say prisoner of wars um, being captured we've got to teach them not just hey do your best to survive but we've got to teach them the skills to do so and since that time period you've seen again an ever-growing acknowledgement of the old school model of hey just you know grit your teeth and and be tough and see what happens and survive however you can is being replaced with mm-hmm. modern psychology and what we know actually works.
0: So let's get really concrete. Can you give one example of a quality of real toughness that is currently a big part of how military trains up and coming um, soldiers, Marines, Navy SEALs, et cetera?
1: One big quality. Um, Sure. So I think, you know, for example, there's research that shows that emotional flexibility is huge. And again, on special forces and people who handle stress and don't experience to the large degree that fog of war, which is a big, big thing. In the military, right? Because there was one study that showed essentially, you know, of new recruits, 96% of them experience some sort of disassociation when they're put in simulated, you know, combat or survival. So what they spend a lot of time doing is figuring out, okay, how do we keep our our heads on straight? So developing this, what we call this emotional and cognitive flexibility, which allows you to... (coughs) When you're in the thick of it, essentially like keep your head on straight by being able to what I call in the book, zoom in and zoom out, which is essentially shifting your attention to something else or somewhere else to get you back in um, in the act of doing what you need to do. So, for example, I talked to one. Uh pilot in the military has said, like, we train so much on what happens if you your plane gets shot at or, like, you have an emergency and you have to still achieve X, Y, and Z goals. Like, where does your attention go? So you're, tra- you're training that cognitive executive function to be able to say, okay, in the heat of this moment, I need to shift to, you know, this, this, and this to make sure that, you know, my mind just doesn't go to fight or flight and uh, escape mode.
0: When is quitting the right thing to do?
1: The story I'll give you here, because I think this example illustrates it best, is I talked to some, uh, some climbers who climb mountains like Mount Everest and other stuff like that. And they tell me that, Quitting was often the toughest decision you had to make because it often came when you were within sight of the peak, which is your goal. But you had to step back and think of, do I not only have the energy to go all the way to the top, but do I have the energy to make it to the top and then come all the way back down the mountain and get safely down? And that decision, when that goal is essentially calling you, you're like you spent months, if not years, trying to get to that is really hard. So what they kind of told me is that it really is about holding on to this self-awareness where you can have the space to pick apart what part of me is my ego telling me keep pushing to the top of the mountain versus what part is real and sense of the assessment of the danger that I will face and my capabilities to do that? And I think you ask, well, when is quitting right? I think it comes down to that assessment. What are you capable of? What are the task demands? And see is it worth the risk to push that a little bit or to push forward?
0: So this is a big part of your book around accepting your limitations, which is very much in vogue, right? That was a big part of Oliver Berkman's 4,000 Weeks. It was to an extent a part of the acceptance chapter on the practice of groundedness. But you get like really clinical here, and you talk about taking a very Honest inventory of your talents and your skills, and then asking yourself, Do I have what the task demands? And if the answer is no, or if the answer is no by a big margin, then you shut it down. What would you say to a big David Goggins or Jocko Willinick fan, or even maybe a Michael Jordan fan? I'm thinking of that game in the finals when he played with the flu. That's like, all of these great feats would never have happened if those people took an inventory of their capabilities and didn't say, screw it, I'm going to go run 100 miles on a broken foot just because.
1: So I think there is, you know, in the book, I have this equation because we love equations on the growth we equation, do. which is essentially that it is my perceived capabilities divided by my um by the perceived demands but there's one other co- component times the meaning or purpose behind it
0: ooh i like that
1: and i think this is what this is why there is nuance to this so i'm not saying michael jordan should have never played in that flu game why his his capabilities might have been a little bit lower his demands might have been really high, but the meaning of that game was so significant because it was, again, basketball was all that mattered to him. It seemed like like NBA finals, championship on the line, all of that stuff. The purpose meaning behind it is so high. And the danger behind, hey, I'm going to play a flu game. The danger is, well, it sucks and I'm still sick afterwards. I'm not going to die. And I think it's that sort of calculus that you need to go through. So if I, you know, you're looking at David Goggins, it's like push, push, push. Maybe for Goggins, like running a hundred miles or whatever on a broken foot is worth it. But if you're an elite, actual, like not to put Goggins down, he's great at what he does. But if his career is competing in ultra marathons and winning them. Running that 100 miles on a, on a broken foot is not the tough decision. It is the dumb decision. Why? Because now you have to spend months recovering from that. You're not going to perform your best on a broken foot. You're not going to quote unquote win. You're, you might complete it. But if you're competing, then you've just set yourself back maybe two, three, four, five, six months down the line of recovering and then regaining that fit- fitness and wasted it. Well, if you stopped,
0: you know, you're back in
1: the game and competing up to
0: your capabilities. So I love that equation. And then we're going to come back to Goggins and and running more broadly. But um, yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of the book is that equation. And I think the extreme example that I immediately came up with when I was reading that helped me grasp the concept is if there's a burning building and you're a normal person, not a firefighter, your capabilities are never going to be matched to the demand of going into that building to get something. So if you left your favorite pen or your favorite watch in that building, running in to get it would be a really dumb decision. But if your kid is in that building, then the meaning component is infinite. And then you go run into that building because if you die, you die, whatever, your kid's in there. Um, so I think layering on that level of nuance is just so helpful to, to really, like I said, you get really clinical about this to help people size up in the moment. Should I, as you write, should I fold them or should I hold my cards and just say, F it, here goes nothing.
1: Yeah, you're, you're really spot on. And that's why I, th- I think it's so important to have that meaning or purpose component is because it really changes the calculus. And that's what it's all about, because there are some things, like you said, saving your children, where it's it's more important, like your capabilities, the demands of it, like that doesn't matter anymore. So that's where I think I'm all about clarity. And maybe part of this book is also about finding the clarity so that you can make that difficult decision in that moment um, to do the right thing. And that clarity is is way more important than if we just said, you know, forget it, like you know, just put your head down and, and always go into the building no matter what. To me that that can be a dumb decision. So it's it's again, like what I'm trying to do is add nuance to this dis- this discussion where it's like yes toughness, resilience sometimes means doing the crazy, difficult thing. But it it also sometimes means saying, you know what, it's it's time to fold them.
0: Yep. All right. So I said I was going to go back to running. Um, This is for the the runners that listen and just the people, I guess, that follow sport. And it's a really tricky question for me to put into words. So let me try my best. The example that you gave says the tough thing to do is to drop out of a race or to quit the game when you're blowing up, you're potentially going to injure yourself, and there's no chance that you're going to achieve the goal that you want, win the race, finish in the time you want, what have you. I've recently heard in the running community that more people are doing this. It's like the equivalent of in the NBA, like Greg Popovich sitting out, Kawhi Leonard and Tim Duncan. And the reason is for everything you said makes total logical sense. If you want to finish in the top 10 and that's the only way you get a sponsor bonus and you're going to finish 15th, might as well pull out and save your legs the last three miles. But what some athletes are saying is that it robs them of the chance to beat that star, to compete against that star. So to be able to say, hey, I beat Shalane Flanagan in a race or I beat Molly Huddle in a race because Shalane or Molly dropped out at 22 because why go through the wall? It's not really a question. It's just a really interesting conundrum. And I understand both sides.
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the the head when you said um, compared it to the NBA, because the NBA is facing this right now, where often coaches and even players are taking rest days And the NBA like commissioner and other people in the front office are saying like, Hey, wait a minute. Our fans want to watch, you know, LeBron and Steph Curry play and they show up and it's like, they're not playing. It's a, it's a rest day. There's nothing wrong. And I think what we're, what you have to find here is this, this happy medium. I'm not saying, Oh, give up, drop out every time, you know, you're not, your goal isn't within reach. Um, And I think there's nuance, and again, with this discussion is maybe it's not, hey, I'm going to drop out at mile 22 because you're you're already in the crucible. You're almost done, right? But maybe it's I drop out at mile 15 when things are going south and my legs just are trashed and I'm going backwards already and it's going to be a bad day and I can save myself for the next marathon, what have you. And I think a large part of this is also... We have to frame this as Molly Huddle, Shalane Flanagan, whatever example of a runner you want to give is they are professionals doing this. It is their job. And whatever helps them, A, compete, but also like financially stay in the sport is a good thing for them. And if the sport is about entertainment more, maybe we switch the incentives, right? But if it's right now not then we have to like take that into consideration. And again, I think it's a a nuanced discussion there where sometimes you're going to make that choice. Sometimes you're not. It just kind of depends on the flip side. Sometimes athletes will struggle through and you, you look at and you're like, oh, why did, you know, so-and-so keep going in the marathon and finish? Well, it's because they're Uh, appearance fee was tied to finishing. So they weren't going to get it unless they finished. So there, again, the calculus changes and it's like, hey, even if I'm going to run 240 and I was trying to run 220, I'm going to run 240 because I get my money if I finish. And I'll just, you know, take that, recover and, and come back another day much later on.
0: Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but it makes perfect sense, especially in a sport like running where um, you kind of have to win the race to get paid in the current situation, anything that's meaningful. If you want the stars to finish, then you ought to pay the stars to finish. Uh, in the NBA, I think it's a little bit tougher because they are and they can find these teams thousands of dollars, but unless you start finding them hundreds of millions of dollars, it it doesn't really matter. Um all right, I want to pivot to um, just because it, it it was on my mind as we were talking about hitting the wall in a race or in my new world, hitting the sticking point of a deadlift. Um, you got two voices in your head that you write about a lot in the book. Why don't you talk a little bit about those two voices and the conversations that so many people deal with that no one else can, can hear because it's happening internally?
1: Yeah, this is... Um fascinating but essentially what it is is you have an angel and a devil on your shoulder and often when we're in the midst of doing something difficult whether it's physical or or you know a psychological challenge such as you know giving a speech or a pitch or whatever have you um the devil shouts loudest and it just is very con uh, you know confrontational and it tells you to quit that you don't have that you're not going to make it all this good stuff. When I surveyed a bunch of elite runners and college runners and asked them, "Hey, how many how many of you think of quitting in a race?" Every single one says yes. Like it's normal to have that that doubt and that insecurity. And I think so often what we do is we almost shame people for having that. And we say, "Oh, you're you're weak, like you've thought about quitting. You thought about finding a hole to step in. And what I t- really try to do and what the research clearly shows is that if you shame yourself for that negative voice, it's almost like you give it power. Where the negative, the devil on your shoulder says, "Oh, you don't like me." But you're listening to me. You're trying to fight me. So I'm going to raise my voice and and almost turn up the volume quite a bit, and it becomes harder to deal with. The reality is we need to be able to essentially send the message to our brain that we're okay that yes we have this voice yes it's shouting loud but it doesn't necessarily mean that it has anything behind it and that we have to listen to it so it's not always about like combating that voice even with like positive thoughts sometimes people think like oh i just have to Use positive affirmations and all that good stuff, and that can work, but often that puts you in this battle that is really hard to win. So the best thing you can do is, again, kind of try and figure out how to what I call in the book, and we talked about this in Peak Performance as well, is have a calm conversation where you're essentially, you know, not reacting to that negative voice, but calmly, coolly responding, you know, just casually so that your brain doesn't think like, oh, this negative voice is really powerful and strong. We should listen to it.
0: So it's basically um, don't take any of your thoughts or voices in your head too seriously.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of, in a lot of the book and a lot of toughness is actually learning how to do that. Not only with your voices, but your feelings and emotions. It's learning to to figure out what ones are real and what ones are just like, hey, this is just my brain being overprotective.
0: Yeah, but it's harder when your body's involved too. And you write about this in the book, so I think we'll move on to it. Um, you're in a situation where the voices in your head are loud, and now suddenly you start to have physiological emotions associated with those voices dread, anxiety, panic, anger, um, on the downside, on the upside, you can get into every bit as much trouble. We talked about climbers near the peak, exuberation, excitement, joy, euphoria. And you talk about turning down the dial. So you don't spiral into just like total blindness in either direction, right? Because you, you spiral into euphoria Next thing you know, your mountain climbing is akin to an overdose on heroin. You can't get down the mountain because of weather or you spiral into dread and you have a panic attack and you don't accomplish whatever you're doing and you feel like shit. So how do you work with the dial of the thought, feeling, behavior pattern? And this is like a big question. This is the crux of so many of the third wave therapies Um, But I'm curious for you to tell listeners your take on this.
1: Yeah. So there's a number of different ways and it gets not complicated, but there's a number of different tools. And, And how I would describe it is nothing works all the time. So what you want to be able to do, regardless of what you're trying to perform at or navigate is... Develop a wide array of tools, a big enough toolbox so that you can cycle through different things to see what works in that moment. And the way I kind of like to conceptualize it for turning that dial is we can either zoom in or we can zoom out. And depending on the situation, you're going to have to, you know, go one of two ways. So to give you the sports example... (laughs) Sometimes when I'm in the, in the heat of the moment, let's say, uh, you know, during a very difficult, high-pressured situation, if you're playing a basketball game or what have you, you have to zoom all the way in to where it's like you're blocking out everything in your periphery and just focusing on and shifting your attention to what is right in front of you, right? The skill set that you are doing. You are narrowing the world so that nothing else matters except you dribbling the ball and whatever maybe defender you're taking on -on one-on-one. That can work very well in certain situations, but it can also cause you to spiral because if you zoom all the way in, you narrow the world. What happens is the emotions, the experiences we feel almost get elevated because they're the only thing we're paying attention to. So, if you zoom all the way in and you are feeling anxiety, that anxiety is gonna come tenfold back at you. This is why Michael Jordan might have been able to do that because he could maybe handle that to a degree, but not everyone is Michael Jordan. Other mm. times you have you have to zoom way that way out, which is creating perspective, which is creating some space, which is you know, and again, there's a million ways to do this. I go over all the tools in the book. But there's some fascinating research that says, again, if we get stuck on the narrow, like let's say you have this feeling that's just cycling over and over and over again in your head and your, your inner voice is stuck on like rumination, the cure is to zoom out, which is changing your perspective. So literally taking your vision and going from, hey, I'm narrowed and focused on you know, that whatever I'm staring at in front of me to literally adopting a soft gaze where you're paying more attention to the periphery. There's some fascinating neuroscience that shows that that will actually shift how your brain works. um, Going from more of a a kind of I'm paying attention to my inner world to I'm paying attention to my outer world.
0: Can you say a little bit more about when in your own life, you go in versus out?
1: Yeah, 100 percent. So I'll, I'll give you the example that we talked about like when I felt overwhelming anxiety sitting in the de- deposition with Alberto Salazar, is in that moment, I was all, all like all I could see was Alberto sitting across from me. Nothing else was there, and my brain was stuck. In f- flight, anxiety, dread mode And what I had to do Is shift that right? So I'll give you my secret And maybe they were aware of this or not But I wear glasses So I can see stuff So what I had to do Is literally take off my glasses So that I can't see any details whatsoever I just see blur And you know Kind of perception Right that one little thing, again, it doesn't cure it, but it gives me enough little space where, okay, I have a moment. I can, I can turn my rational, my prefrontal cortex executive functions back on just a little bit. And in that space, then it's, okay, what am I going to do here? You zoom your thoughts out. I'm stuck on, I'm thinking about Alberto Salazar. That's not what this is about. I zoom out. What is this about? why did i you know blow the whistle so many years why am i here who is in my corner who is not here right now but that i know supports me and that i know i can talk to as soon as this is done and you're trying to remember almost make you remember that the world is not ending in this small small window it is much more than that
0: it reminds me a lot of um Aldous Huxley, who talked about the reducing valve of awareness. And granted, he was talking about um, all kinds of psychotropic substances to help open it up. But ultimately, the reducing valve of awareness is you can get so fixated on something, whether it's your identity, whether it's an emotion you're experiencing, whether it's a feeling of threat, and it just gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And it's like you're just Churning that screw tighter and tighter. And what I'm hearing you say is that the ability to turn down the dial often is the same thing as opening up that valve of awareness so that the thing in front of you is kind of right sized, whether that means against your values, whether that means against your community, or whether that means against the whole universe.
1: I love that. No, that's spot on. And, you know, again, you'll go. Deep philosophy, I go to sport um, and running. But if you look at elite level marathoners and and the work that they've done um, on understanding the psychology, going all the way back to Olympic gold medalist Frank Shorter, is that elite marathoners possess that ability to zoom in and zoom out or get narrow or get broad. Well, novices often get stuck Right, They get stuck on too narrow, this is the thing, this is, I'm going to end. And what you see, if you track actually their attention over the entire marathon, or marathon elites, they zoom out at the right times so that they have the ability to get narrow during crucial times when they know they'll have to. And that's the key on often like this narrowness is that most of us can only handle a, a little bit of it for a short amount of time. So we want to make sure that we go there when it when it matters most and we don't get stuck there because if we do, we'll fall into that, again, rumination. This feels like the worst stress in the world, like I'm dying, so I can't handle the thing. So it really is about having that flexibility to uh, to bounce back and forth at the right time.
0: All right, so I've been throwing you um, some, some fastballs down the middle. And um, now it's time for a little bit of a curveball. And I said that I was going to come back to Vladimir Putin. And I was out there on the internet a couple weeks ago, just kind of priming the pump for your book uh, and commenting on real versus fake toughness. And someone made a really interesting point which is that sometimes you need to have fake toughness in order to have real toughness. And they gave the example of nuclear weapons and basically said that the only thing that allows someone to practice real toughness is the deterrent of fake toughness. And I thought this is the same thing as the totally jacked, tatted up, power lifter, jujitsu master, whatever, that can just destroy anyone with their bare hands. And it's that force that then allows them to practice real toughness and be calm and be collected in disarm situations. So I obviously didn't have an answer. I just got to be like, hey, read Steve's book. I don't know if it's in there because at the time I hadn't read it, but it'll be in there because that's what we do on the internet, read our books. Um, but it was a great point. So I'm curious how you think about that. Uh, well, let me, let me, let me say one more thing. And I think like the example here, what I was going to say is to make it really clear is like what allows someone like a, a, a Barack Obama in the white house of America to be, to have real toughness is the fact that America's got this enormous stockpile of nukes that every other country knows about that. That's like the basic gist of this guy's argument. What allows the. Teacher to love and care and practice real toughness with their students is that their students also know that that teacher can snap on them in an instant. So, is there this counterbalancing effect? And do you need to have some degree of fake toughness to then be able to show real toughness?
1: So, here's what I would say there the fakes, this is the again that this is kind of covered in the book, as you know, because it's it's at the heart of the argument, the same argument where people talk about for coaches like Bobby Knight, you know, who I outline in the book, is having fake toughness. But then people are like, "Well, Bobby Knight won a lot of games, and this, uh, this, and that. So maybe fake. T- you need that fake toughness and control." But he- here's what I would say: Is that yes. In certain situations, having a ton of nukes gives you this sense of security to be able to do you know, things and command things and have power and control and all of those things. But if we relied on having nukes and everybody had to have nukes to be able to be quote unquote tough, then we're not living in a very good society then we're going to run into some problems. And what I think what I would say is, and especially for the example you, you gave there is like, oh, the reason the kids behave or whatever have you in the classroom is because the teacher has this authority. Maybe it can happen for a while, but what we know from both the research and experience, and I've talked to plenty of teachers, actually talked to my wife quite a bit about this in the discipline part, and this, that is also in the book, is that if you command respect because you're the authority and you have this power placed upon you, you don't really have respect. Mm. You're not really going to get the the best out of that stud- those students. You're not going to teach them or teach them whatever they need to do, and they're not going to be as resilient as you are as the leader because they are essentially behaving or performing out of a place of fear. And what decades of research shows us is that, yes, some people might be able to do it. Some people might have to survive in it. We get that. But people are more resilient. They persist longer Okay, on all sorts of tasks, they handle pain and discomfort more. They experience growth from stress instead of PTSD. Whenever they have an environment around them that supports their underlying psychological needs, that gets that, we'll say that power through buy in instead of control. So to me it's like a no brainer. It's like, yeah, you can go for the cheap stuff, mm-hmm. but it's gonna it's not gonna work as well and it's going to fail except for in very specific situations. Like maybe, I don't know, in in you know, I had this discussion the other day with Vern Gambetta, a great strength coach or a great coach. And he said, and he said essentially the same thing in the 1950s and sixties, football coaches could get away from uh, away with this because we had nothing better to do. Mm -hmm. We would go, we would go have to work on the fields or we could go to college and play football and football is the thing that allowed us to stay in college. So we chose to play football because we didn't want to go home and work in the field.
0: Yeah, but I'm going to challenge you just a little bit more here. And I think it's a fascinating topic. Like I am obviously on board with, with your definition of, of toughness, and I don't deadlift enough to even be able to truly claim fake toughness. So I'm, I'm real tough because I'm soft. Um, what would you say, and it's very much in vogue in kind of like the conservative political discourse, that we evolved from primates and there's an alpha male in primate packs. And as much as we want to intellect and woke our way out of that, we just can't. And I'm just playing straw man. I don't necessarily believe that, but but like that's the argument that you're going to get.
1: Yeah. So I think that's, A, a very simplistic understanding of how uh, biology works. Because it's more complex than hey, you know, we evolved in hierarchies in these packs. We do. Hierarchies actually absolutely matter. But here's what they don't tell you when you say that. Your hierarchy isn't stuck based on, again, our movie interpretation of how primates work or how tribes work. It's not, oh, I'm the only leader and everyone else is below you. If you looked at, again, because <coughs> I looked into this for the book a little bit, um if you looked at modern version of tribes or even ancient tribes that we know a little bit about is it's not the hierarchy. It's not so much that they were all hierarchical. We all had, they had different hierarchies and there were different clarity of how you were contributing to that tribe. And what I would say also in response, and there was this brilliant quote from uh, the neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky, who, who studied primates for a very long time, and he essentially said, you know, we all need to find our thing where we can be near the top of the hierarchy. And he went on to say, for some, that might be in the work, you rise to boss, for others, they can literally fulfill that by being the best player on the company's softball team. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as we look at, oh, some people are built for alphas or whatever have you, that's not, that's not the case. That's not the reality of it. The reality is, you know, if you look at that hierarchy, we'll take that out and take that to what we know in modern psychology, which is basically... People need to feel they belong. They need to feel like they have a voice. They need to feel like they have a choice. They need to feel like they are contributing to their family or their group or their community that they belong in. If we do that, you know, doesn't mean we have to be on the top of the totem pole of whatever it is that you know Joe or Jill thinks is important. We just need those those basic needs, and I think having the ability to be tough comes down to that too, is if you can fulfill those things, you're creating the space and environment for it. Alternatively, if you create one of these, you know, let's say very strict alpha hierarchies where it's like, you know, somebody needs to be on top and we're just tough. All you're doing is maybe fulfilling the needs of one person, but then you're going into this fake toughness world of Vladimir Putin, where you have a society where it's like, yeah, it might look good for a couple elites, but kind of trash for everybody else.
0: Yeah, I was hoping you'd say that. I read a really interesting piece in The Atlantic a little while ago on rethinking primate research and how um, there's just so much selection bias to the stories that are told. And then, like, you know, there's movies like Godzilla that support it. But actually, in the vast majority of primate families that are share the most genetics with humans. um, the whole alpha model doesn't really hold up, and there's all these like matrilineal tribes where it's like the the mother and the feminine energy and the caring energy that gives one status. Um, so without without becoming political, um, yeah, notch that kind of conservative viewpoint in the overly simplistic category.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's like status. Y- you can also look at this over time as the ways that we get status changes throughout history. So why would we think like oh the simplistic alpha model is is the way to go. So again it's a lot of these things where we get these ideas wrong and this hopefully comes across in the book is that there are so many simplistic stories we tell about these things around toughness, around leading that just don't hold up to our modern understanding and the simplistic story is like we need to ditch it by the wayside. It might have sounded good, but it just it doesn't work. So that's you know, that's what we try and do here at the growth equation is dispel some of that simplicity and bring back some nuance.
0: Love it. All right, so now let's shift a little bit to um, some fun stuff, some inside baseball. so less the the content of the book and more the process. So the first question is, you know, when groundedness came out a year ago, I thought I was doing it, man. I had Ariana Huffington, I had Kel Newport, I had Ryan Holiday, I had her friend Dave Epstein, all these great blurbs. And you're like, I see that, and I'll raise you one Malcolm Gladwell. So, you know, for those that might not read too much, but they just they follow our work, first off, thank you. Second off, Gladwell is like the GOAT, like the LeBron James, Michael Jordan of kind of this highbrow nonfiction writing. And he doesn't blurb too many books, um, so when Steve told me that I'm going to get Gladwell to blurb my book, I'm like, "Wow, how did that happen?" So I'm sure other people are wondering that too. It's not like we're close friends with him. How did you get LeBron James of nonfiction, pop science, self help to blurb your book?
1: Oh man, you know, here's here's the thing, Brad. You know, our our mutual agent told me that I had to I had to one up you. And she was pushing for it on everything. She'd be like, this is what Brad did. Can you do better? Well, and I'm like,
0: Gladwell is like the the top of the ladder. You've got all the blurb status. You are the alpha male.
1: So that's, that's all I'm trying to do. You know, since you've gotten bigger, since you're not running, I'm a little, I got to make sure I have my alpha male, my status somewhere. <laughs> you got the um,
0: skinniest dude ever, Gladwell. <laughs>
1: <yeah>. <laughs> so this is, you know, it's a funny but simple story is, um you know, you, you shoot your shots on these blurbs. Um, when you write books, when you write something, you spent years writing something and you're just like, I think this is really good. And part of me is I hate asking people for something. So this isn't, as you know, Brad, like normally you're the person who handles all the people ass. So I hate doing this, but I really had to, you know, I wrote a book on do hard things. So I was like, okay, I got to push myself out of the comfort zone a little bit. So, um, our mutual friend who really helped out with this dave epstein i asked him i said hey dave i really think this book would be right up malcolm's you know alley based on what i've seen on twitter and his writing and his podcast and all that stuff uh, do you think you could just do you feel comfortable writing an email and saying hey you know introducing me to him and dave said yep great so i got an email intro and then I, I was honest with Malcolm. I just said, "Hey, I'm Steve. He knew who I was because Malcolm's the biggest running nerd fan, you know, in the world, which helped. So running saved me here. Um, but I said, "Hey, I wrote this book, explained what it is, said essentially, <laughs> and, and I'll kind of quote this, I said, it is redefining toughness into the ru- runners version of toughness because it kind of is right when you're running you're in your hole you're in your head you have to navigate it and that's when i'm kind of you create the space to navigate it you can't push through it you got to create the space to. so that that's what i outlined and he was fantastic he didn't you know i i didn't ask for a blurb actually i don't think at first i just said can i send you a copy of the book if you if you like it you know I'd appreciate this, but he he, we sent him a copy. We talked a lot about running, which was great, and then he came back with a blurb, which was again phenomenal.
0: What was the hardest part about writing this book for you?
1: I am an overwriter, as you know, Brad. So Brad is a cutter, and he just like cuts things down and sharpens, sharpens, sharpens. And I'm more of a writer who just dumps stuff out on the page and then eventually comes back to it so the hardest part was making the cuts and and actually our our mutual agent would say the same thing as I probably I sent in a a manuscript that was probably like 15,000 words too long <laughs> so we actually had to cut a chapter but I was honest with my editor and I said look I tend to overwrite I want you to read through it and tell me, you know, what's the weakest part or what are the parts that you said, "Hey, we can we can cut this." And you know, that was that's a difficult part, but it also tested like my ego where I had to be like, "You know what? You're right. We're going to cut this chapter, rearrange a couple things and make it make it still work and flow."
0: So it's a different editor than we did Peak Performance and the Passion Paradox with. I'm curious, what is What was like the one most memorable thing that um, Anna, your new editor, did to the book or advice that she gave or where she pushed you in a new direction that you weren't necessarily going to go?
1: Honestly, it was pushing me in the non-athletic realms.
0: Thank God for Anna.
1: Yeah, you know, because it's my tendency is to just go all athletics. And I was aware of that and tried to counter that. But it was that... And part of that was also, you know, she was like, Steve, there are so many, you know, messages and gems in this book. And some of them are almost like hidden because I'm not as explicit sometimes on like, this is like, this is how it applies all the time. So she was really good about kind of bringing out like, hey, like tell the, you know, tell the executive or the parent in this situation, like how this concept applies to them. And I think that really helped kind of solidify the book because I think just, you know, maybe similar to peak performance, this is a a very heavy cross domain thinking book, which is you're going to see stories from athletes, you know, executives, entrepreneurs, teachers, you know, all sorts of military uh, special forces, all those operators, all sorts of people. So tying it so that everybody kind of sees that thread throughout was really important. And she did an excellent job of making sure that thread was there.
0: All right. Two more questions. Go to snack while writing the book.
1: Go to snack. Oh man. Um, I love dried pineapples for whatever reason <laughs> gross so those, those were like on my desk for well, hillary like, oh. there's
0: probably rotted pineapple all over your house
1: no no it's 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 good stuff man you just go to heb the grocery store of texas you get you get their dried fruit and it's good stuff
0: all right and then more seriously what's the biggest thing that you now? strive to practice in your own life that you weren't doing before as a result of what you learned?
1: Wow, that's a difficult question. So I think that we write the books that we struggle, that we're we're like, that we need. So I mentioned at the beginning of this, like I wrote this towards the end of going through the most difficult time period of my life, which is the no whistleblowing experience and finishing that up. And often my tendency, even though I knew better, was to just like isolate myself, ignore it, try and just, you know, get through it, get on the other side of it. And over time, that just did not work. I was miserable. I was causing my wife to be miserable because I was just trying to avoid the thing as I was going through, again, these appeals and depositions and waiting for, um, waiting for results and all that good stuff. So it was extremely difficult. But what I had to do was essentially do, do, you know, follow, I was following the steps of the book while I was going through this moment. So I was trying to say, okay, you know what? I need to stop avoiding this thing. I need to stop, like, trying to compartmentalize all of it. And I need to, you know, accept and get support and get help on the other side. And that really was crucial to, you know, to doing the hard thing. And the one other thing that I'd I'd say is this, is that I really got an appreciation for uh, going through that whistleblowing experience, which which made me realize that anybody, like we, we like to think we're tough. We like to think we're moral. We like to think that, you know, we could, you know, through a difficult situation, we'll do the right thing, but it is not easy. And I don't fault people entirely. I don't fault people if if they get put in situations and they go the wrong way. And they make the wrong choice and they make the wrong decisions. I think that happens to all of us. So it's to me, it's about how do we accept that, learn from that, and then just do our best in the future in those moments.
0: Love it. Well, listen, everyone. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Don't take it from me, but Magnus beautifully and persuasively reimagines our understanding of toughness this book is a must read for parents and coaches and anyone else looking to prepare for not just sport but life's biggest challenges the one and only malcolm gladwell so if gladwell's endorsing it you all better read it tying another part of our interview together today to our big ask, which is that you go get the book right now, is if you as a listener of the Growth Equation podcast, get the book by the end of this week. This podcast comes out on Wednesday. You have till Sunday, but if you're listening to it now, get it now. You will get all the pre-order bonuses. We're going to extend that for you and include it in those pre-order bonuses along with guides to developing toughness, summaries of key points, case studies, is the cut chapter of it, Steve was mentioning, um, which is a phenomenal chapter. I thought they should have included in the book personally, but they didn't. But guess what? You get it if you get the book right now. So get the book for yourself. Get the book for your friends. Get the book for your colleagues. It's a phenomenal book. It is so important. It is extremely timely. Um, That's the first reason to get the book. You'll learn a ton from it. It will make you feel better. It will make you do better. The second reason to get the book is it really helps us support the work. It allows us to keep the podcast, um, sponsorship free. Uh, in addition to our Patreon group, a big part of our income, what allows us to employ our wonderful COO and producer Chris is our book sales. So if you like what we do, you're going to love the book. It will make you better. And it also allows you to support us. So wherever books are sold, do hard things. It's the latest growth queue production. Um, Steve wrote this one, but I couldn't be more proud to have it under the Growth EQ banner because it is just phenomenal work.
1: Thanks so much. That really means a lot. And for listeners, I really hope that you check out the book, Do Hard Things. It's out now. It's on discount at Amazon and other places. So check it out. You can get it wherever books are sold. And as Brad mentioned... We have all sorts of bonuses. Go to the show notes at thegrowtheq.com to get your bonus chapter, the deleted chapter, a bonus course, guides to toughness in the workplace, out on athletic fields, all sorts of things. And I just want to thank you. Thank you for listening and thank you for checking out my book. It's what allows us to keep doing these things and it allows us to keep doing the work that we're doing. So all greatly appreciated and if you enjoy it feel free to review and then share on social media it really does help every little bit helps when you're launching a book it's a crazy crazy thing to do so appreciate it and thanks for listening
0: thanks for listening to the growth equation podcast Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.